Welcome to Cleveland Clinic Cardiac Consult, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Good morning, everybody, and thank you for coming, joining us uh, globally. So I shall be talking about what we do before the patient ends up in surgery and beyond. So this is a 48-year-old patient. I saw, I shared with Lars Swenson, uh, asymptomatic but active duty firefighter. Uh, incidentally detected uh, dilated aorta as part of his calcium score preventative screening. Echo revealed also bicuspid aortic valve as shown on the echo images. Uh, and uh, without significant AS or AI, his contrast enhanced CT showed an aortic aneurysm, reach, aorta reaching about 4.8 centimeters. He was not a big guy. His aortic area to height ratio was little over 10 centimeters square per meter. We will uh, discuss that briefly. So given his high-risk occupation and uh, all the ramifications related to that, shared decision-making, long story short, he underwent a successful aortic valve uh, sparing root replacement and ascending aortic replacement. He's doing well. So the syndrome of bicuspid aortic valve, this comes in different flavors. This is from a most recent publication in JTCVS. The most common scenario, obviously, is the middle one, the typical valvular aortopathy, where there's valve disease, there's aortopathy. It occurs in young adults, uh, requires surveillance, and may require treatment at risk for endocarditis as well as dissection. On the other end of the spectrum uh, is the complex uh, scenario with many genetic syndromes or congenital heart disease, uh, may have aortic coarctation and uh, the downstream ramifications related to having complex disease. And the third one is you going around your merry life, uh, no issues till somebody listens to you or somebody does an echo and they find uh, some, uh, some simple condition. These may uh, result in a lifelong silent condition or some downstream ramifications as folks get older. So imaging in BAV, it, you know, it's a two-pronged story. You have to delineate the valve part of the story. Is it uh, nothing? Is it mixed valve disease? Is it predominantly AS or predominantly AR? And echo obviously remains the mainstay, uh, but sometimes in heavily calcified valves, it gets difficult to ascertain what type of valve is your, uh, pathology there is. So I've just shown an example of a uh, 4DCT. Sometimes 4DCT nowadays uh, is increasingly being recognized as something that can help to be a tiebreaker when you want to uh, really know what type of uh, bicuspid valve there is. So the phenotypes, these are various cartoons. Uh, phenotypes of BAV, again, the valve part of the story. The most common is the fused bicuspid aortic valve, which occurs in about 90 to 95% of them, where the most common is the right to left uh, cusp fusion, and the least common is the left and non-cusp fusion. Then once you have this fused uh, BAV uh, pattern, you, you may want to look at, from a surgical planning perspective, uh, whether or not the cusps are symmetrical or very asymmetrical, and this follows a spectrum. 
the less common is your two sinus, the true BAV that people used to talk about, uh, which occurs in about five to seven percent of BAV patients. And again, is it a la lateral lateral or an anteroposterior two sinus bicuspid valve? And the third one, obviously, is the form frust, uh, where there is only partial fusion. So. I like to call it functionally bicuspid looking, but uh, be it as it may, it behaves as a bicuspid aortic valve. And another important aspect is recognizing, understanding, and quantifying calcification, uh, especially because it has an implication on whether you're going to be able to repair the valve or you are talking about replacement, and that may help with the timing of the procedure. And in the world of tower now, emerging world of tower, there's increased emphasis being placed on quantifying aortic leaflet calcification, and that has some prognostication in ascertaining is it severe or not. So some things important to keep in mind. <clears throat> Additionally, what are, as I alluded to, uh, average age for pure AR is in the 40s, and AS is in the mid to late 50s, maybe in 60s. And uh, if you look uh, carefully uh, in the literature, about half the patients at about 25-year mark will require aortic valve surgery. AS occurs in 60 to 67 percent of patients. Aortic dilation about, if look for carefully, about 40% of patients. AS, I mean, AR is about 15 to 30% of patients. And mercifully, uh, congestive heart failure occurs in a significantly lesser proportion of patients. Endocarditis occurs in about 2% of the population and mitral valve in a similar proportion. Now, for whatever it's worth, uh, the bottom uh, right panel shows data from Mayo Clinic, which suggests if you have a RAFA, versus no RAFE, there are prognostic implications. Well, uh, you know, take it for whatever it's worth. The other aspect of the story as it relates to BAV is aortopathy. Uh, and uh, this is an example of another patient I, uh, in my practice who basically has a BAV, no question about it, but his bigger presentation was a significantly dilated aorta and a family history of dissection. So how do you handle this person? Clearly, he, he needs a valve sparing root replacement, a root and ascending aortic replacement. And the aortopathy comes in different flavors. The most common is ascending phenotype. The next available uh, in terms of uh, frequency is root phenotype, and then you could have a full extended uh, phenotype. Now, the question is, is this the chicken or the egg situation? What comes first? Is it a both of them have a genetic predisposition or uh, severe aortic stenosis drives aortic uh, dilation? We don't really know. I, I, my personal bias belief is that this is mostly genetic predisposition rather than the other way around. Assessment of aortopathy, echo remains the first line, uh, and there is various different ways of measuring Z-scores, but there are some limitations of echo. Echo is very dependent upon the quality. If you, you have to make sure you, you are doing accurate measurements, otherwise you're going to be off. Z-scores are generally only available for aortic root, not the ascending aorta, and obviously a body surface area. So indexing it to body surface area is affected by obesity. So at least at our organization, uh, we rely heavily on tomographic imaging, and we are big proponents of indexing the aortic size to your aortic area to your height, because that tends to remain relatively static in life. 
So the other important aspect is contrast enhanced CT angiography. Every world-class bicuspid aortic valve and aortopathy deserves a good tomographic scan. Uh, that's my strong belief, at least once. Uh, CT is available and uh, rapid, and it can image the entire extent of the aorta. It is crucial. It is crucial to make sure these are ECG-gated techniques. You do not want motion artifacts in the ascending aorta. And in the rightly selected cases, CMR can also provide, cardiac magnetic resonance can also provide uh, the same type of data. Right and a wrong way of doing things. I put this in purpose, the things. That's not a, in a advertent error that was by uh, design. So beware of artifacts. The last thing you want to do is get a call from your friendly aortic surgeon in the OR that you send a patient for dissection repair, and that's just an artifact. This is the importance of gating. The other is these fake measurements. This person has a tortuous aorta. Uh, this is the bottom right is the right way of measuring the aorta. If you measure it the, the different way, this is 118 millimeters. In reality, it is truly not. So you have to be very careful how you're measuring these aortas. The other, and this is something that we do very diligently, we strongly believe diameter alone is not sufficient and indexing it to uh, creating an area uh, using multiplanar reformatting and indexing it to height provides incremental uh, value beyond just diameter. And this is our data, folks who underwent surgery, where if your area is greater than area to height ratio is greater than 10, they did better versus the ones where we relied only on diameter. CT can also be used for preoperative planning. Doug and Eric and our colleagues, they do a lot of minimally invasive stuff where imaging can help precisely identify the location of where we are going to do minimally invasive aortic surgical approach. MRI, there's emerging roles uh, where there are some abnormal hemodynamic flow patterns using 4D MRI and differences depending upon the type of cusp abnormalities you have in bicuspid aortic valve. This is still a research tool, but hopefully applications down the road may be forthcoming. So guidelines, what do they recommend uh, in bicuspid aortic valve? Uh, typically without risk factors, it is more than 5.5 but more than five centimeters uh, with risk factors. Uh, at the Cleveland Clinic, pretty much this is a center of excellence. For the most part, uh, we would generally recommend surgery uh, based on a combination of two things, reaching more than five centimeters, or if your area to height ratio is more than 10 centimeters, especially if you have a good surgical team, which we do. So <clears throat> what does the... There are some organizations that have reported that the observed versus expected mortality in the setting of bicuspid aortic valve is slightly worse. Uh, and the panel figure D suggests that even if you get operated, uh, it, your outcomes are, uh, are worse compared to general population. At the Cleveland Clinic, much better our outcomes if you get if you are evaluated and operated at the Cleveland Clinic for your full spectrum of bicuspid aortic valve and aortopathy disease, your outcomes are very similar to age and gender match population. So to end, I will say love or aortic valve may or may not last forever, but aortopathy lasts, stays with you forever. 
So what you need is like your 401k plan, you need a 401a plan. You need a long-term plan, not just to follow up your advanced aortic repair, but family screening and, and all the ramifications of that. So thank you so much. Thank you very much, Malin. And uh, next up is uh, Patrick Vargo, one of our uh, newer colleagues in the uh, aortic surgery group here at the Cleveland Clinic, who's going to talk to us about uh, the intraoperative surgical perspective. Um, Patrick's probably wishing that most of his practice was uh, bicuspid valve and ascending aorta rather than redo arches. But, yeah. Thank you for having me uh, today. I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the intraoperative perspective. These are my disclosures. So when to replace the ascending aorta, Dr. Desai just discussed much of this. And uh, uh, the uh, guidelines are, you know, five and a half. Um, or if you're at a center of excellence and you're low risk, five centimeters. And, uh, um, or if you have risk factors such as family dissection. So I won't belabor that point. Um, an important uh, other, other measurement, though, is that if you're going to surgery for another indication and the ascending aorta is uh, five and a half, or sorry, four and a half centimeters, and you have a bicuspid valve, that is also uh, an indication to replace that area of aorta. And similarly, uh, as discussed, the cross-sectional area to height plays heavily in our ro role for decision-making with a threshold of greater than 10 centimeters squared per meter on cross-sectional to height uh, ratios. So elective aortic uh, replacement is safe. So a study out of here, we looked at almost 2,000 patients, um, and if the, it was an isolated aortic procedure, the mortality was less than a, about a half a percent. Um, the aneurysm size for that population was just over 52 millimeters. And if it was a multi-component operation, um, other than just the uh, ascending aortic uh, replacement, the uh, mortality was 2.5%. So elective aortic replacement is safe and can be done safely. But how much aorta do you resect? So as another study looking at the different, the different phenotypes of uh, ascending aortic aortopathy in the setting of bicuspid valve, uh, there's largely three, three different phenotypes, a roof phenotype, an ascending phenotype, and then a more distal ascending proximal arch phenotype. Uh, with the roof phenotype being generally in younger, younger males and the ascending and the arch phenotype being in uh, older aged patients, with the arch even being uh, in more advanced age and, and often has a right non-fusion. So how much aortic resect is largely driven by where the ascending aortic aneurysm is. Um, if you have a root aneurysm, you replace that versus the ascending and the arch. So that really drives it. Um, now, if you have a distal ascending or a proximal arch aneurysm, you may not have adequate uh, aorta to clamp to do this uh, without doing a circulatory arrest. So that's an important consideration when I am preoperatively evaluating a, a bicuspid aortopathy. I'm looking at, is this, a, is this a surgery I can do with a clamp, or do I need to do circulatory arrest in a hemi-arch or maybe a more extensive arch repair? Similarly, you look to the root, and, and is the root dilated? Is the root aneurysmal? Does that need to be addressed? Is it greater than the four and a half millimeters in a low-risk patient? Um, and if you are going to commit to a root operation, you need to make decisions about the valve, as it is inherently part of the root itself. Is it a salvageable, salvageable valve? Is it a valve that needs to be replaced? And these are discussions to know ahead of time to discuss with the patient. If the root uh, is asymmetric, and often these bicuspid valves, it is a bit asymmetric, uh, the non-coronary cusp can sometimes be excised, and the tongue extension of the ascending graft can be tailored into the root as well so that you remodel the, remodel the root without doing a complete root replacement. Sometimes there's an opportunity to do that. Due to the location of the ascending aorta right behind the sternum, it's, it's amenable to minimally invasive strategies. Um, for many ascending, sometimes even hemiarch, with or without an aortic valve, 
uh, we can replace these with a mini ascending uh, hemi-sternotomy hemi incision. Uh, it's been shown to be equally safe, low complications. It's cosmetic. The patients like it. And it also decreases the ICU stay, the hospital stay, and overall costs uh, to the healthcare system. So once you've decided to, to go to surgery and you're going to going to replace the ascending, you also need to make a decision about the valve and you need to assess the valve. Much of this can be done preoperatively, as shown in the previous talk. You can assess for calcium on the CAT scans. Uh, you can assess for leaflet mobility on the echo or MRIs. Um, so a lot of this is done preoperatively, but also an intraop assessment is important as well. Sometimes subtle amounts of calcium or leaflet thickening isn't appreciated preoperatively, and uh, it needs to be closely inspected. Things that would make me replace the valve is if you have calcification, if you have a component of stenosis, if the leaflets are thickened and not mobile, these are all not likely to, to, to um, lend themselves to a, a definitive and durable repair. If you're going to replace the, the valve, you have to have a preoperative discussion with the patient. A tissue valve, as, as we all know, is, you don't require any coagulation, but there's limited durability. And the role of TAVR and valve and valve TAVR continues to, to change this discussion. Um, but in the end, the valve will have a limited durability and shelf life if you replace it with a tissue valve. Uh, mechanical valve is another option, and it's often discussed heavily for young patients, but it comes with the burden of anticoagulation, lifelong bleeding risk, as well as reoperations for things like panis and growth. Um, and it's not necessarily guaranteed that they won't be back for another open heart surgery. Increasingly, there's a discussion about a Ross procedure, but in the setting of an aortopathy, uh, there's concerns about a congenital genetic component to the connective tissue and, and the durability of the autograft, as well as uh, the presence of severe aortic regurgitation being a predictor for autograft failure. Now, if you do look at the valve and it, it does meet those, those uh, checkpoints where you don't have significant calcium, you don't have large or, or disruptions in leaflet fenestrations and perforations, and the leaflets remain mobile, um, this is the valve that's salvageable or reparable oftentimes. Bicuspid valve repair uh, with the ascending replacement, it's often making a prolapsing leaflet meet and co-op the other side uh, evenly. The annulus is oftentimes normal in this situation, the root's normal in this situation, and you're <clears throat> adjusting the length of the, of the conjoined leaflet. So here's some tinics shown here, and I'll show them again on the next slide as well. Um, the raffae can often be freed up and a little bit, sometimes it's a little bit thickened and it can be debrided a bit and then plicated to, to shorten that leaflet free edge. Um, also, supracommissural or subcommissural stitches or a figure of eight stitches can hitch up the commissures and improve coaptation for this kind of a valve. Looking at these valve repairs, uh, over 10 years of freedom from Reintervention is about 80%, and those that were reintervened upon had a, a very safe operation with zero mortality and very low complications. If you have an aortic root that needs to replace with a valve that's sal salvageable, um, such as aortic root dilatation or aneurysm, or you have aortoannular ectasia as well, um, that requires a, a total root replacement with a, with a valve sparing operation that preserves the native leaflet tissue. Uh, just shown here is a, is a mobilization around the leaflet or around the uh, annulus uh, on the outside to dissect down there so the subcommissural stitches can get placed, the subannular stitches can get placed under there and really tighten up any kind of annular ectasia that you have when you seat the cloth tube over the existing valve. So here's, an, here's a, a picture of a completed modified David procedure in a valve sparing route with somebody with a bicuspid valve. As you can see, those leaflets look healthy. There's no calcium. They're not thickened. The valve has been reoriented to 180 degrees and the raffae plicated, usually with a running locking stitch. 
Um, the valve commissures have been resuspended, and there's small supercommissural stitches there to improve coaptation. So this really combines the traditional tricuspid valve sparing route with the techniques of bicuspid repair to give a, a competent valve that doesn't require lifelong anticoagulation and hopefully will provide better durability than a tissue valve. So in conclusion, elective aortic surgery uh, is safe, could be safely done. If you're going there um, for surgery and you're going to be operating, you need to, re you ought to consider replacement of, of any aorta that's greater than four and a half centimeters at the time of surgery. And then if you're able to preserve the native valve, uh, you avoid any coagulation and potentially provide a, a durable result to the patient. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. We welcome your comments and feedback. Please contact us at heart at ccf.org. Like what you heard? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen at clevelandclinic.org slash cardiac consult podcast.